if there's one central theme in these weekly podcasts and in my newsletter that's called The Planet, it is, and that shouldn't come as any surprise to any of you, life on our planet. And nor will the reason that we work on this theme surprise you. It's not that we enjoy living on this planet so much, which in fact we do, and nor that we only want to focus on the beauty of life on this planet, although both of us enjoy nature so much, but it is that life on this planet is under threat. A threat that is so existential that you wonder why it is not every day in the opening of the evening news. And perhaps we ignore it because the scale of these challenges is so huge that it's just hard to grasp. And if we don't urgently tackle climate change, the living conditions on Earth will rapidly deteriorate. And there are solutions readily available, but the world just lacks the cooperation and political will to save the only planet we have. And pictures of Mars may be fascinating to watch, but my main conclusion is that I would prefer to stay in Ottawa or on my favorite Dutch <laughs> island. And a second challenge is pollution. If you missed it, I hope you'll find a moment to listen to yesterday's podcast with Rachel Kupka, uh, the executive director of the Global Alliance on Health and Pollution. Um, because pollution kills 9 million people per year. Or if you want another pollution fact, in less than 30 years, the oceans of the world will contain more plastic than fish. We're poisoning ourselves and all other forms of life. But apart from climate and the pollution crisis, which are already bad enough in itself, there's a third crisis, and that is the loss of biodiversity or the loss of nature, as some people call it. And the talks between diplomats from all over the world to hold this crisis now seems to be in a crisis itself. The UN Biodiversity Summit to agree on a final new global deal to reverse the loss of wildlife and habitats, something that you might compare to uh, what is known as the Paris Agreement uh, that we agreed upon in, in 2015 will now be delayed again. It's already the fourth time that this has been delayed and it will now take place in late August. You will likely have some tasks that you keep postponing for years, like cleaning up your attic or your cellar or maybe reorganizing your bookshelves at home. And you postpone them because you know that the future of the world is not at stake because of a dusty attic. But world leaders fail in their leadership if they can't preserve nature for our next generations. And having shared those thoughts, I would like to say, welcome Alistair. What did Thanks, I miss? Alice. Or <laughs> let me phrase this differently. If, if a history teacher in a hundred years from now explains to students what went wrong while we all knew what was at stake, how... How would that teacher explain that we kept postponing an agreement to preserve wildlife and enough nature? Wow, that's a hard one. I think the teacher will start by saying something like, I don't know where to begin. As you say, we all know what's happening. And this question will be asked also for all of these three global threats that you've outlined, climate change, pollution and biodiversity loss. Indeed, we, we know how bad the situation is on all these fronts, but we know how much worse it's going to become if we don't act. Um, yet our governments don't find agreement, or if they do, like in the Paris Agreement, they don't live up to it. You know, the UN Secretary General um, Antonio Guterres said, you know, we're, we're 
heading for mutual assured destruction, um, as we were discussing last week. Um, it's it's it seems there's always another priority that's more urgent. And of course, there are, you know, in human time spans, we think in days or weeks or months. And of course, you know, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine are, are priorities now. But, but then so is our duty pr to preserve the planet. Um, so the, these talks on a biodiversity treaty to, to protect life on the planet made little headway in Geneva this week. They were bogged down in disagreements. And then, you know, this, as you say, this summit, is, which was meant to be due in China in 2021 last year, um, it was, last year was meant to be the big year for biodiversity and climate, wasn't it, with, with both the, the Glasgow Climate Summit and this one in China. But, of course, the pandemic kind of threw things out um, and it's being delayed again uh, to, to August, as you say. And that's, that's provided, you know, people can go there because of COVID and other things. So, you know, the ultimate goal of this conference is a bit vague. You know, it's the, 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 the Global Biodiversity Treaty sort of is about living in harmony with nature by 2050. That's, that's you know, that's, that's vague. But there are very concrete things underpinning us. You know, the developing countries issued a new demand at the end of the talks for $100 billion a year to protect biodiversity, something that, you know, is, is separate from the $100 billion a year. <laughs> That, uh, that we're expected to give for, for, to developing countries or to contribute to developing countries um, for, for, for protecting the planet from climate change and for adapting to it. So, you know, among these targets um, that they're setting, the key target three for protecting as, you know, this, this, this document is full of brackets which show the points of disagreement. There are more than 700 of them in, in, a, in less than 20 pages. And each of these brackets shows where countries disagree on what, what to put as a form of diplomat. I'm sure you've, um, <laughs> you've, you've done a lot of negotiating around, around <laughs> these sort of brackets, right? Yeah. <laughs> so this target three, where, where, where countries hope in the draft that they would protect at least 30% of the planet as area, both of the oceans and of the land has one single mind-numbing sentence, which is more than 270 words long. Just to, just to give you a flavor of how this is written, um, it includes the goal of protecting, and then I start quoting, brackets globally, brackets at the national level, of brackets terrestrial, brackets and brackets freshwater, inland water, brackets and marine and brackets coastal areas, brackets land areas. You get the idea. It's everything is up for grabs here, you know. Um, There's no disagreement on the word "off." It's, it's, <laughs> I think the only word that you mentioned that was not in square brackets. <laughs> Indeed, yes, yes, that's right. Um, anyway, so you get the idea. It's a total mess. Um, you know, it's, it's not unusual, for, I guess, for negotiating documents to be full of brackets. The, the Paris Agreement was also looked like an, a total sort of soup of brackets um, until the very final day. Uh, when they cleared them all out and finally said, OK, we give up, let's, let's just go with this uh, in a sort of rather quick, dirty compromise. Um, but, the, you know, this this treaty has been optimistically billed as the biodiversity equivalent of the Paris Climate Agreement, which, as you say, hasn't been living up to its promise recently. Yeah, but at least the, the Paris Agreement uh, sets a clear target uh, that we should aim for. And it doesn't say yet how we're going to get there, but, but at least there's, there's agreement between all countries in the world where to go to. But 
This sentence is amazing. I mean, I've, I've done a bit of <laughs> negotiation uh, myself for, for many, many years, actually, uh, in, in all kinds of UN formats. But um, a 270-word sentence, um, that is more than twice as long as the, the world-famous uh, opening line of, uh, of Dickens' uh, A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> um, and that one has 119 words, and that sentence is a tale in itself. And, and actually, its first words uh, would, be, would be quite fitting for what we are talking about today. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and... As I said in my introduction, there were there are quite a few things that are the best of times. I mean, I, I do enjoy living. I do enjoy nature. But it's the worst of times because we just know what is going to happen if we don't act. And we know that we don't act. So I, I wonder, are, are we living now in the best uh, of times or in the worst of times? And I'm asking this again in, in your let's say, reincarnated role in 100 years from now as a history teacher in the year, which, which will be 2022, which, which I recently actually wrote about in my newsletter, which I always try to promote in this show. Those who don't follow me, please subscribe to the Planet newsletter. Um, since people in that year will celebrate the most beautiful of, the second most beautiful of all dates ever, which will be, the 22nd of February in uh, 2022. So that's 222 and 222, which must be a joyful moment uh, if you celebrate that at uh, 22 seconds past, 22 minutes past um, 10 p.m. Um, uh, there, there must have been um, in the year um, 1111 an even more beautiful one because we don't have the months number 22. But there's, all, there's, of course, the month of November. So they had 11, 11, 11, 11. Uh, but there was a one-off. I'm not sure if anybody was aware in those days. Uh, nor did they have digital clocks to, um, to celebrate it. Um, I'm drifting off. Uh, I think we were, <laughs> we, <laughs> we were talking about... Uh, yeah, so, so, uh, so let me see. 100 years from now. Yeah, where, where will we be? hundred years from now, go, well, I hope we've sorted out these problems that we're struggling with now. I mean, I, it, it should be possible. I mean, there's, there's, if, there's, if there was a will, the will around, if there's the will to cut carbon, the will to protect the nature, the will to, to adapt our, our lives to, to a more sustainable way, then sure. But, you know, I think people in a hundred years' time will be fascinated by the decisions we're making now, the, the type of things that we're, we're wrestling with. And let's just hope that They've solved it, um, but you know, maybe we just look back a hundred years to to see the follies that we think of. Uh, we're judging people by now, whether they apply then. You know, uh, I think of a century ago, around at the time of the First World War, the the, the well, there'd been a world war, right? The Great War, as they called it. Um, many women, men at that time, believed women should not have the right to vote. It's extraordinary that we're a hundred years on. You know, the, the, just a hundred years ago, half the electorate was disenfranchised. You know, American women won almost full rights in 1920. Here, where I live in Norway, it was 1913. In Canada, where you are, it was 1917 to 19, I think. Um, you know, some there have been some laggards, of course. Switzerland, I mean, 1971, I think it was that women um, were got full rights in, in federal elections there. So. 
you know, you think that that was the these these this disenfranchisement. Well, anyway, <laughs> denying women the vote in a democracy is crazy. Um, future historians will write that about our approach to biodiversity in similar terms. You know, the numbers are shocking. Um, and this goal of preserving at least 30% of the planet, of the, of the land surface and of the oceans is, is, is a great one by, by 2030. And it should then be raised to 50%. Of course, you know, it's, it's really difficult to decide. If you're a, like here in Norway, for example, they say, oh yes, we support the global goal, this global goal, it's just that we've got a whole lot of oil fields off our coasts, so we don't support the goal locally of putting aside 30% or 50% of our marine areas. So there's an awful lot of things getting in the way of this goal of national interests. But um, I, think, I think next generations are going to blame our generation for ignoring such existential threats. And yeah. not one leader can say they didn't know. Yeah, it's a bit like paying tax, you know. I I so fully agree that my neighbor should pay more tax, uh, <laughs> and and people in other countries too. And yeah, um, it's it's just my own tax that I disagree with. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's a familiar theme with all these these uh, these kind of um, uh, tragedy of the commons kind of uh, of, of challenges uh, that we are dealing with. And indeed, as you say, uh, it's it's hard to imagine now that uh, that there was a serious debate going on a hundred years ago whether women or not should actually vote, or whether they were capable and clever enough to vote, or whether it would be dangerous to give them the vote because they might come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And uh, and there was a serious debate in in, in politics and. Yeah, the same, I think, in 100 years from now, if people look back, well, they, they saw that, you know, because of climate change and pollution and biodiversity losses, you know, this whole this whole planet was going to be destroyed. And we we were basically just blaming each other and setting the wrong priorities and not taking action, even though we knew how to take action. And protecting 30%, I mean, just think about it. We have this, this amazing huge planet of ours and then we we claim as one species that 70% uh, is for us and and 30% uh, should is still for us but then should be labeled as nature i mean it's not that much really so uh, yeah so 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 back to this conference what what are now the the next steps now that this has been postponed for what is it the fourth time already i think yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It's ended. the uh, The hope had been that this this meeting in Geneva would clear away all the obstacles to holding a summit uh, later in the year in Kunming in China. But but it's. They've now had to put add an extra meeting to to this in Nairobi, Kenya, from the twenty first of June, to try and get some breakthroughs on on this deal. Um, you know, in, in Geneva last week or this week until Tuesday, there were officials from one hundred and ninety five countries were meeting to discuss what they call the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. Again, they could do some editing on that title as well, couldn't they? And that's about setting 21 targets on everything from increasing the extent of protected areas to stemming the loss of species. Um, but they failed to agree on any fully on any of the targets or even the overarching mission. Um, and of course, everybody's aware that uh, in 2010, back in Japan, they set the Aichi targets for 2020, and we fell short on those as well. You know, um, we're very good at setting great targets, but not of 
pulling of not completing them. So, you know, you've got this problem with the square brackets where it's um, littered with these things and um, there's an awful lot of things to clear up. And then, you know, we just hope that when they finally meet in, in Kunming in August, we just hope that, you know, they, they're coming there with strong delegations. Um, I think in Aichi it was min, uh, environment ministers who turned up, but maybe this time they can kick it upstairs to presidents and, and prime ministers to be involved. That could help to break the deadlock, as always. But on the other hand, you look around the, the tensions between key nations in the world. You know, Russia's today asking countries to pay in rubles for its uh, its fossil fuel exports, um, and we've got this whole division between most of the world condemning Russia and Russia very um, um, you know, going ahead with the, the invasion of Ukraine. You can ask yourself if it's likely that they're going to suddenly overcome all the differences on biodiversity, which are deep, and there's economic issues here as well, you know, and decide on a treaty that will really preserve biodiversity to please the teacher in a hundred years' time, who will then say, you know what, we underestimated these guys. They suddenly came up with this deal. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of uh, unlikely, unfortunately. And I, I also wonder how those negotiations will take place at the moment because the, the, the atmosphere must be so poisoned between between all diplomats because of, of, of uh, between all diplomats and Russian diplomats because of, of this uh, this uh, extreme breaking of, of international law by this, this, this completely illegal invasion. Uh, and and non-provoked and and of course war is always bad but this is such an extreme case of just just land grabbing uh, that uh, and there's there's so much misinformation and manipulation taking place that I imagine that even in a completely different field like negotiating about biodiversity it it must be difficult to uh, to sit around the table at the moment but uh, but but let's let's move to some more. Uh, uh, positive news because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys are still listening because we're talking here happily about the end of the world, right? This is this is <laughs> this is this is just yeah. like this is, this right is weird news, yeah. because what we're talking about is a deeply deeply sad situation that we are so rapidly losing uh, losing the 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 amount of of, of species both of, of plants and animals and. Um, and it's it's uh, it's it's tragic. It is really really tragic what is what is going on. But yeah, to move to some positive news um, that uh, there uh, <laughs> um, uh, you you may have heard from from the news from Ember, which Ember is an independent non for profit uh, think tank. Um, and uh, they they contacted me just just two days ago because they had a new report and a, and a press release and I, I tweeted about it um, and uh, they said that uh, now for the first time wind and solar generated 10% of global electricity and that's the very first time and that was this, these are the numbers over um, 2021 so yeah I guess that's good good news right. That's, it's great news. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, as you say, solar solar power rose 23% last year and wind by 14%. I mean, or solar generation. Solar power has been pretty much stable for the last few <laughs> million years. <laughs> but our, our tapping of it uh, rose 23% and wind by 14%. So together, 
This puts us, nudge them just above 10% of global electricity generation. And then Ember adds that all what they call clean electricity sources generated 38% of the world's electricity last year. And that's more than coal for the first time. Coal was on 36% against 38% for clean energy. Uh, but there's a bit of a hidden controversy here because um, the report includes nuclear and clean energy sources. Um, the report wouldn't get close to 38% without nuclear, which makes up about 10%. So, you know, non-nuclear uh, non clean energy is 28%. Um, is so, you know, nuclear is clean as a low carbon energy, but it's not, but it's not renewable. It's not very clean if you take account of the risks of, you know, the, the names that are a sort of horror show, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and of course the need to store waste for thousands of years because it's radioactive. But then, you know, risks are arguably low enough to help us through the climate crisis, as we've discussed before, you know, maybe we've got to swallow the bullet and just... Um, just take that one. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think if you if you define clean energy as um, energy that is not producing uh, the greenhouse gases, then then from from that point of view, you could say uh, that 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 nuclear is clean. Um, walk around in, in Chernobyl and it's not clean of course but if, if from a, from a climate perspective uh, the the overall biggest urgency is is to get rid of um, of of, uh, of of the of fossil fuels which is about three quarters of, of the problem and and the rest is mainly uh, land use of course um, so yeah so uh, yeah, so to, 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 we have to stay on this pathway of um, of one and a half degrees. Um, so, do we? How much? How much? What kind of growth growth rates do we need to to stay on this? So, well, Ember's report is is very optimistic on this front, or not optimistic, but it just sort of gives out. It says that you know wind would have to and solar would have to keep up these compound growth rates of 20% every year to 2030. That's an amazing rate, but it's, it's what they say is the average over the last decade. So Ember predicts this is now eminently possible, um, you know, that wind and solar are the lowest cost source of electricity on a levelized basis, and there's ever more experience of integrating them into grids. So there are now more than 50 individual countries generating more than 10% of the electricity from these resources and three countries generating over 40 percent um i forget which those are i don't know denmark i guess is among denmark those, i think uruguay is also one oh, yeah. um, i forgot the third one yeah Not they're sure. doing amazingly yeah. aren't they um so you know these these technologies are delivering um of course the wind doesn't blow all the time as people say but um if you put up enough wind turbines you can probably charge up your batteries pretty well for to keep you through the um, the, the, nice, the nice balmy days of uh, when the wind doesn't blow. And governments like the US, the Germany, and the UK and Canada are, are so confident about clean electricity that they're planning to shift their grid to 100% uh, within the next decade and a half. But, you know, coal is still rising, the demand for coal is still rising, and electricity demand is continuing to increase. The world is getting richer, there's a Populations growing, so all governments with carbon-intensive grids are now need to act with 
that same boldness as am and ambition as these other countries are already doing. Yeah, and that's that's unfortunately where the good news ends because however much I love to see the increase of new renewables, and I think it's spectacular because 20% per year is, of course, a um, uh, exponentially growing graph. And, and so you have a long kind of take-off phase. But if as long as you keep going 20%, I mean... I wish if I had stocks on the stock market that did 20% every year, you just have to wait and all your problems will be, will be solved, right? And you so, can pay your uh, taxes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but uh, unfortunately, the climate doesn't care. Um, uh, stopping climate change requires not more renewables, but it requires the less burning of fuel. And it's it's... It's only since we need, we still need energy that, uh, so then it's great news that, that we see more renewables, but uh, the only thing that counts is to stop emitting greenhouse gases. And that is, um, that that makes this whole thing so complex. So you also have to look at um, the use of the amount of energy. So let's say with all the, um, I forgot the numbers now, but I think it was Bloomberg that I, that wrote this morning an article. And if I remember correctly, they used all the uh, they gave the number for all the electricity that was used in the United States in 1950. And by now, all the renewable energy sources in the U.S. are already enough to power to provide all the electricity that the U.S. needed in 2000 uh, in um, in 1950. But the problem is, of course, that our consumption is also increasing. So a, a, a separate debate that we, I think we don't hear enough about is using less energy, uh, which is the easiest way to uh, to solve climate change, is, is just use less energy. And that's <clears throat> that's something that's where we're, um, yeah, we, we, we maybe look too much at renewables and too much at, at, at coal, but we should just use it less. Another element is that, we're only talking now about electricity. So 10% of electricity use in the world um, is 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 now um, is 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 renewable or is clean. Um, but we don't talk about all the other uses of of um, of, of energy. So let's say for producing steel. Uh, you need really, really high temperatures, and that's not very easy to to power that with a few windmills or or batteries. Um, so, um, or flying airplanes, for instance. So there's 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 still huge challenges ahead. But at the end of the day, technically, we can do it. We do. We just need a good uh, good government. So uh, the 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 power uh, sector CO2 emissions they rose to an all time record. So they were beating the previous record uh, of 2018 by three percent. So. We, we're talking about a rise in just one year, in 2021, of 7% rise in CO2 emissions. And that is the biggest percentage, percentage rise of CO2 emissions uh, since 2010. And it's the biggest absolute rise ever. And that is, unfortunately, the only number that really impacts the climate change. The climate doesn't care about percentages or, or comparisons to other countries. If you have the biggest absolute rise in CO2 emissions, you have the biggest absolute impact on, uh, on climate change. So a 7% rise uh, following on this fall that everybody 
we all about us three present in 2020, which had everything to do with the pandemic, of course. Um, so uh, that is that is still in absolute numbers. That is still horrible because, as we all know, we should drop with uh, with enormous percentages every year because we should we should lose half of the CO2 emissions or all greenhouse gas emissions, I should say, uh, in just eight years' time, in 2030. So we need to drop 50%. And uh, we have only eight years to do that. So those are those are really shocking numbers. We go up instead of rapidly down. Are you muted? I don't hear you. There you Is are. Is that better? No, sorry That's about that. That's much I was, better. I, I managed to press the wrong button there for some reason. <laughs> I saw I saw your mouse <laughs> moving. I was like, "Is it just me? I don't hear you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're looking at each other on Zoom to keep track of what we're up to. But uh, that uh, so, we, but uh, yeah, we can. Um, it's. Uh, I just hope that our teacher in a hundred years' time will know the numbers of what has happened in terms of growth of these electricity sources of renewables of emissions. Um, but it's been fiendishly difficult to predict any of this stuff. Everybody gets it wrong, it seems. Um, I looked up an old International Energy Agency report from 2004, which is the oldest one I could find. And it, it looks at other renewables, which is a group including geothermal, solar, wind, tidal and wave energy. And remember that we've just passed 10% of uh, global electricity coming from wind and solar alone. This report back in 2004 predicts that the, all these other renewables, their share in total electricity generation will grow from 1% in 2002 to 4% in 2030. So we're already at 10% um, now, and they were predicting 4%. And, and you know the, the, the lag times, the lead times for investments in these things uh, in power plants um, can be decades and the coal-fired power plant can last for 30, 40, 50 years even. So you know the International Energy Agency was predicting that these new technologies, wind, solar, would not be really taking up very much so that they were then effectively encouraging uh, governments to say, uh, you know, guys, we're going to need your coal plants, keep building them. Um, it underestimated the switch that we've had. So. You know, the IEA, meant to be a sort of guru at forecasting, got it wrong. Uh, we're already at 10% a decade earlier than predicted, so than, than predicted 4%. So let's co hope we can keep up this green growth and the embers projections of compound growth are going to be going to work mm -hmm. out for all of us, for all our yeah. sakes. Yeah, sure. These are these are interesting numbers. I think what IEA also would never have predicted for themselves in 2004 is the change in, how do you say, the, the character of the organization. By 2004, it was still the darling of the fossil fuel industry. It was it, it was just there and everything. IEA was only talking about fossil fuels and, and how great they were and how we could have more energy and what should be uh, the ideal price of, of, of a barrel of crude and those kind of uh, talks. And now the IEA, which which is the 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 the, the bulwark of, of 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 the fossil fuel industry, is really actively calling for a rapid transition to renewable energy because we can no longer wait, etc. And and that is that is amazing to see uh, an international organization that has 
the the power to renew their vision and the courage to do so because um, I, I I've worked a lot on these kind of international organizations and it is really difficult to change course uh, if if you are in such an organization there's all kinds of power relationships and influences etc but they did so and I I admire how how they have found a new a new direction and a new course to uh, to fight for, and that it is really urgent, is uh, illustrated last week uh, by the latest worrying news we 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 received about melting ice, and there was this collapse of of a relatively small ice shelf in East Antarctica, and uh, the fact that it isn't a really big ice shelf uh, doesn't make this one. Uh, really important because this ice shelf, the Conger ice shelf, um, is um, it's, it's about the size of the city of Rome, which is compared to how big uh, Antarctica is, which is I think about as big as the U.S. and Mexico together, if I remember correctly. But it, the, it, yeah, yeah, it just broke up for good on on March 15, so just just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, and. So ice shelves, those are, are flat-topped uh, ice that, that, that floats um, on the ocean at the end of glaciers. And, and the biggest one is, is the Ross Ice Shelf, which is in itself already, it's, it's nearly the size of, of France, I believe. So this one is tiny, being the size of the city of Rome. But it is significant because we talk here about East Antarctica. And East Antarctica is viewed as just one giant frozen ice cube and the, 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 the coldest part of the frozen continent. Um, it is the one reliable deep freeze in the world and that is now heating up. And most other ice shells that, that have broken up and that you've seen uh, pictures about and worrying stories about what would happen on the penguins on the ice shelf written by journalists that don't know that penguins can swim. Uh, <laughs> and uh, all those ice shelves, they've, they've been on the Arctic Peninsula. That's on, on the other side of the continent. So that is if you, if you just go straight south from, from South America, it's, it's the one that snakes up uh, towards South America. And, and that is, that is a bit warmer, and it's it's really uh, snake-like if you if you look at the underwater pattern uh, and follow the islands, how it is uh, connected to to South America. It's a beautiful um, example of plate uh, tectonics. So um, it's it's the ring of fire actually uh, in a way that's connected there. So the the, the scientists say now that the loss of this uh, conger ice shelf it may be a very worrying sign of things to come. Uh, and that is about um, uh, melting on on the cold side of Antarctica. Yeah, indeed. Antarctica is locked up about 56 meters of sea level rise if it ever were to, me to melt. Of course, you know, we've been used to the idea of East Antarctica as the place that won't melt. Uh, so, so luckily, the, the Conger Ice Shelf, which I'd personally never heard of before, um, I looked it up, it's not named after a Conger eel. It's not I'm named after the dance, the conga. It's named after a guy who uh, worked for the U.S. Um, uh, Richard Conger, an American who worked with the U.S. Navy and helped survey the area in the 1940s uh, after World War II. So luckily for us um, and for his reputation, I guess, the conga doesn't hold back big glaciers inland. The worry is always that the disappearance of these ice shells is going to trigger a faster slide of the glaciers 
into the ocean that will add to sea level rise. So these ice shelves are like the corks in bottles of wine lying on their sides, pointing out to sea. Pull out the corks and the wine they hold is going to spill out. Um, keep the corks in by cutting emissions and uh, the wine will stay in. So, so far, the, all the, as you say, all the ice shelves that have melted have been relatively small. Um, I visited one in 2009, the, the Wilkins Ice Shelf um, in Antarctica, with the British Antarctic Survey, where we landed in this little red plane uh, equipped with skis. Um, it was quite an adventure, and that ice shelf broke up uh, three months after we, we landed on it. Um, it's now gone, disappeared into the Southern Ocean. Um, but, you know, that was a pretty small one too. But there are other bigger ones that are getting much more vulnerable, like the Thwaites in West Antarctica that we've discussed before. So, you know, uh, the worrying signs from Antarctica, you know, the sea ice around the continent shrank to a record low this, this summer, uh, this Antarctic summer that's just ending. Um, it's not clear whether that contributed to the collapse of the Congo. Um, We've also had scary stories in recent weeks about high temperatures at both ends of the Earth, with freak temperatures tens of degrees warmer than usual, both in the Antarctic, parts of the Antarctic and parts of the Arctic. But then again, as with much things to do with climate change, you can find it the opposite story um, to this overwhelming general trend. There's always little ex ex exceptions that um, skeptics will seize on. You know, in, in one antidote to, to this, the worries about the rising temperatures in Antarctica it was minus 69.5 degrees Celsius in one place this month in Antarctica. That wow. is cold. That is really cold. That's, uh, if you spit on the ground, you hear a stone falling on the eyes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think it'll freeze before it leaves yeah. your lips, won't it? And your lips will freeze. Yeah. <laughs> you, you must have had some scary dreams once you, once you escaped in your plane, knowing that suddenly this whole shelf just, just breaks in two. I mean, your, your plane could have, could have dropped into that, uh, into that hole that, uh, that started the, between those yeah, two. The pilot didn't want to stay very long on that ice shelf. Um, you know, the, the, the scientist with us from the British Antarctic Survey said, you know, it could break up pretty much at any minute. We'd better get out of here. We don't want to stay around for too long. You know, luckily, I guess a plane weighing a few tons isn't going to cause the breakup of these massive things that are hundreds <laughs> of meters thick. But uh, <laughs> I was must glad be, when we took off. <laughs> it must be a bit like the story of Shackleton that, you know, when, when they, they had already lost the endurance, which was, by the way, recently found. And um, then they um, uh, they uh, they they were staying on this ice shelf with their three boats, but they they couldn't sail the boats yet because there were still huge ice shelves. But of course, moving slowly, slowly in the Weddell Sea uh, in this northwest direction, they the ice shelves were breaking up, and at a certain moment they were they were sleeping at night. And um, Shackleton hears a strange sound of something falling in the water so uh he wakes up walks to the point where the ice shelf has broken in two and there was one guy with his uh, sleeping bag who just dropped in the water and uh shackleton hangs over pulls the guy out of the water and right at the moment that he does that those two ice shelves bang against each other again and throw solid so anything that fell in between couldn't get up again. So just seconds before he pulled the guy out, 
he was up um, uh, so he could still um, uh, claim his reputation that nobody that uh, ever uh, went anywhere with Shackleton uh, didn't come back alive, uh, including this guy who didn't have a spare set of clothes uh, because they lost it all on the ship. Wow. So he had to walk out uh, in the cold, but um, he did survive. Uh, the story says he some toes froze off, I believe. But uh, for lovers of Shackleton, uh, read these books and um, and uh, and never uh, never go on such a kind of expedition unless you do like Alastair and you have your <laughs> little red plane to uh, to get out of there. So um, yeah, and and uh, looking forward uh, to the next week. Um, I think IPCC will be should get attention. The previous, the second report that came out, uh, the second in a series of three or four, if you if you account uh, a complete report, and the second one didn't get any attention because it came out basically on the day that Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. Um, but scientists and governments are meeting this week now to to approve this third part of of the report about climate change. Um, and that part is focusing on how to fix the problem. So they're meant to agree on a 30 or so page summary for policymakers. And as, as you know by now, that is the part that they really negotiate about. That is where scientists and diplomats together agree with everybody from all over the world uh, on, on, on what their text should be. And, and this report is now due for publication next Monday. Uh, so that's April the 4th, and uh, likely um, controversies about um, sucking greenhouse gas from the atmosphere uh, will be there, and uh, there will be um, controversies about planting forests, uh, the cost of action, etc. So this, the, as I said, the third section of the report. Last year we had uh, what the United Nations called a code red report about the science of global warming, and a month ago, we had another one looking at the impacts of climate change around the world. So basically, it is three pieces. One is, this is the science of global warming. warming. The second one says, what does this mean? What is the impact? And of course, the third question is then, how do we fix the problem? So it's, it's about heat waves, uh, floods. Uh, it's about extinctions of animals and plants. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, so this part is actually the most important one. It's all about solutions. Yeah, as a journalist for many years, I've followed the IPCC since you know 2002, two cycles ago, and I've read quite a lot of their reports. But I mean, I must say, you know, the last, the one that came out a month ago is 3,700 pages long, and I've, I've dipped into it. But I'm not sure how many people read these sort of things any longer. They're just too long. And this is this is a part of the problem of the sort of explosion in, in climate science. Jim Ski, who's the co-chair of the meeting, said that the literature is rising at 20% a year, which is a bit like the growth we were projecting for solar panels. And yeah. solar panels growth is great, but and so probably is this literature. But it's just so much harder ever to how to how do you figure out how to sum it up? You know, how do you how do you distill this in, into a summary for policymakers? And it's becoming more complicated to do because you know it overlaps with all sorts of other areas of science. You know, biodiversity, ever more, social sciences, agricultural policies, economics—they're all getting more and more integrated into this report. 
and which of course nobody <laughs> nobody reads the a lot of the um, a lot of the these thousands of pages. Um, so some so there are some suggestions you could reform it. You could, might make the wiki, the IPCC, the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, into more of a sort of Wikipedia type of report. Perhaps that's the way forward. And then, of course, we come back to where we started this podcast, biodiversity, climate change and pollution are all sort of facets of the same problem we're facing with the way we're messing up this planet. Maybe it's time to merge them all into a single state of the planet scientific report, you know, ideally no more than 100 pages. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, we 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 need all that all that science. There's just so many reports coming out. It needs to be published somewhere. So you, I don't know how they're they're going to reform this. I mean, basically, that there's many reports is not a problem. The real problem is that uh, politicians don't take action, and uh, so our leaders are not leading, and that is that is the main problem that we're dealing with, and that there's. 4,000 pages, I mean, nobody's going to read all those 4,000, well, maybe a few, but but nobody is supposed to read those 4,000 pages, but you can look things up. I mean, it's it's like on Wikipedia. Nobody reads everything in Wikipedia, uh, but you read um, whatever you need. And uh, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of suggestions for re reforming IPCC, um, but that is typical when, you know, when a big problem is not solved, people are trying to focus on other kind of sub-problems that are not a real problem. The real problem is that we need climate action, and we need it fast, and we need international cooperation, and we need much more solidarity on this planet. We need to tackle it more integrally, in, in, integrated uh, with other problems, because you can't deal with climate change if you don't deal with um, better governance on all levels and in all kinds of forms of governance that we have and you can't solve it if you don't tackle inequality and you can't solve climate change as a single issue without talking about energy and food and water and also about biodiversity and pollution and all these things are connected and uh, it should just be the main priority of everybody on, on the planet and it doesn't mean that you don't deal with other priorities, which we have. I mean, Ukraine is just to mention one priority, which is, of course, um, if if you look there, if you look back um, from uh, for, as as the historian in a hundred years from now, you will just shake your heads and say, like, why they had already so many problems on the planet at that moment? They were rapidly moving towards extinction. And then uh, somebody's going to steal another uh, another independent democratic country that is in no way threatening to 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 his country. And uh, historians will just shake their head about uh, stupidity, like you know, like 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 Barbara Tuckman wrote books about uh, the, the 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 folly and the stupidity of of decisions taken or. Uh, I think there's a Guinness Book of Records of uh, the the stupidity of history of of, of crazy decisions <laughs> that people took, yes. and um, I think if they make an update in hundred years from now, this one may be quite high on the list of uh, first making sure that you have such a system that you get informed consistently wrong about what's going on in your country because nobody dares to report negative news, uh, and uh, and and then based on that you make the wrong decision. So. 
we live in um, in interesting times. As if if I will be that historian in a hundred years from now, I will probably refer to uh, the last Tsar of Russia that had uh, a, a new uh, a, a train for the for the for the emperor for the for the Tsar. Um, and on that train, there were beautiful, I think, golden or whatever, some kind of expensive metal uh, eagles were put on the train to show to everybody that it was the Tsar passing through. And then the engineers knew that that train wouldn't fit in uh, the first tunnel that they were going through. Uh, but nobody dared to tell him. So uh, the only option was just let it drive in and let the whole thing collapse. Um, and history is full of those. Uh, the thinking of the Vasa in uh, this uh, ship in, in, uh, that is beautifully preserved in, in, in a museum in, um, uh, in Stockholm. If you ever go there, just go there. You have to see it. Same story. Everybody knew it would, it would sink as soon as it would uh, leave uh, the shore. And after 800 meters, the whole thing sank to the bottom. Um, but nobody dared to tell the king that uh, the ship was not seaworthy. So um, history is full of these things. Um, I'm drifting away from the planet, but we have already we're already on for like like 45 or 50 minutes. So, uh, if there are any questions, please um, uh, raise your hand or push the the phone button. There's Evelyn, but she immediately left. That was a really quick one, Evelyn. There she is back. Evelyn, I think you pressed the wrong button, but there you are. Please no, join no, us. No, 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 I just had to. I just had to leave the room and come back because my phone, but anyway. Um, <laughs> hi, Evelyn. Hi. There's a couple of, um, or a few comments and questions in the, in the chat. That, um, one I had as well, what is clean was the, was the question. And for, for Switzerland especially, I mean, we have a lot of hydroelectric, electric power and that doesn't usually make the green well it makes it like the green power less but not the renewable obviously so i i also have that question that was um asked there and if i may because you mentioned it alistair say something about um voting rights for women in switzerland mm. It was well. It was seventy-one on the on federal level, but yeah. there was this one last on state level. It was actually nineteen ninety, and that was decided by federal in a federal court. So nineteen ninety uh -huh. people wow. let that sink in. That was the last. Well, we call them cantons, so the last one. And there's a movie about what happened in nineteen seventy-one. If anybody's interested, it, in English it's called the, the Divine Order. Well worth watching. It explains a lot about how Switzerland functions, and it's really embarrassing. And I'm like, I'm totally embarrassed by this whole topic that we were so late. But it's a, it's yeah, it's a good movie. If you if you speak German, um, watch it in German. It's called the Göttliche Ordnung, which is pretty much just. Um, Word by word translation. Okay, that's that's all for today. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's great. Thank you for that. Good. I I, I looked up Switzerland, thinking I did. It occurred to me that Switzerland was very late, and I thought you might be listening. Even so, I, I looked up Switzerland. I'm sorry, I got it slightly wrong there. As you say, the federal elections, even even thank goodness, the 70s. That's a very late. Um, that's a very late 
entry to it, isn't it? Um, on your comments about clean energy, I completely agree. It's such a mess, isn't it, to decide what is clean, what is renewable. This, as we were discussing this report by Ember, sort of lists um, nuclear power as clean, um, but it's only in terms of carbon. And then you know, there's, you read all sorts of controversies about pretty much any type of energy, don't you? I mean, you have um, uh, hydroelectric power in some tropical countries. You know, the silt at the bottom of the at the bottom of the um, lakes can be dredged up, and that can release all sorts of methane and other greenhouse gases just from the from the from the vegetation that's accumulating on the bottom there. So it's spraying out all sorts of stuff, and then. You know, you have, um, I was listening to a call this morning uh, with some scientists talking about, you know, bioenergy, burning wood pellets and stuff in power plants and how this releases all sorts of, it may be renewable because the trees grow back, but you're burning stuff that then um, is releasing particulate, you know, pollution into the atmosphere unless you're very careful. And, um, you know, so there's, and of course, you know, you build wind turbines or photovoltaics and, uh You've got to use other resources to build these things, other metals and, and stuff, and batteries require all sorts of weird sorts of lithium. So I think everybody comes up with different definitions, don't they, of green and what is clean. Um, I don't know, Alex, what do you think on that? And I'll, look, I'll listen, I'll try to look out that movie too. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I got a hungry cat who is uh, mowing on the background. So if you if you hear some cat sounds, don't pay any attention. It's uh, it's on my side of um, <laughs> it's, it's my problem and uh, or her problem, uh, whatever she has. But um, yeah, so yeah, on, on clean, I was, I was looking at the comments um, and uh, saying, yeah, uh, on 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 nuclear um I, I agree. I think for the moment it's very difficult to go without nuclear. On on the other side, uh, it also takes an enormous amount of time and enormous amount of greenhouse gases, by the way, uh, for uh, for building nuclear plants. And uh, there's there are so many options of of speeding up, especially solar. Um, so uh, I would say, let's say if you if you look at at Germany, I would say now decommissioning nuclear plants. Um, for security reasons, doesn't weigh up to uh, the risk of continuing uh, burning burning coal. So, I would I would dare say continue using them if they're still in 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 good quality. Um, and un until we have enough uh, alternatives uh, from uh, from wind and solar and other, let's say, real. Uh, renewables and um, the thing we should really st uh, stop doing is burning coal um, first of all and, 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 and then oil and then gas and preferably all of them uh, together but there's just limits on how far you can go because of this enormous demand of, of energy uh, that we have and it, it will be very interesting to see uh, what will happen let's say in, in, in the weeks and months and years to come now that uh, a country like Germany is now so rapidly um, uh, stopping their dependence on fossil fuels from Russia. Um, what that will do to society? Because it's it's uh, if anybody would have raised this, let's say in January, people would have said, "Oh, that's impossible. We can't do without it." Now we say we can do without it, but it does mean that some uses of uh, fossil fuels that we had until recently. Um, 
should no no longer be there. So we 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 will see um, shortages of energy uh, in Western Europe, and uh, I I think this is a an enormous challenge for um, our our governments in Western Europe on on how to deal with that. And uh, I mentioned before a kind of wartime economy where the state takes much more control than you would normally love to see in 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 a democracy uh, may be needed to to really regulate things and we've already seen during the pandemic that the government was taking an amount of control uh, that you would normally uh, not expect to see i mean imagine uh, somebody would tell you five years ago that the government is going to tell you that you can only enter public transport or cinema if you're wearing a mask, you would have said, this is crazy. Of course, my government would never take away my freedom to decide what I'm wearing. But we, we all agree to that. So a lot of things are changing. I see a new comments uh, coming in. Um, uh, and now I'm not sure which one is the latest. Yeah. I just see some. Susie things. has an the last one. Susie has a. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Susie yeah. has one from a little bit earlier on. Um, one from, from Sue. Saddens me yeah. to say that. I think the world and its nature would be better off, far better off without us. I speculate on how many years it would take for it to recover. Uh, I like to imagine biodiversity would improve hugely and rapidly. I wonder if you'd agree and how long you think it would take to regenerate. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? It's a fascinating it? question. There is a, bu there is a book called The World Without Us, isn't there? I forget who wrote that, but it came out about five years ago. It's really interesting. It, it imagines exactly that scenario that people just suddenly disappeared and it imagines how, you know, what would happen to cities. They'd become overgrown very quickly. Uh, the subway in New York would become flooded but within days, you know, electricity would break down, things would start to grow, the highways would be overrun. I mean, you can see it in ancient cities, um, you know, the Mayan cities that have been rediscovered. Um, you can see that they've been, after, a, a, you know, a thousand years, um, they're totally overgrown by the jungle. You barely notice that we were there. Um, and, you know, he, he goes on to speculate, you know, that what would be the last standing uh, monuments of humanity and, and you know, who, who knows, they might even be the pyramids. You know, they're built in a very dry place, they've been there for 5,000 years. They might be among the last monuments to humanity after our, our current cities have rusted away and fallen away into dust. Um, biodiversity would take back, like, you know, look around the Chernobyl plant there, they, things yeah. Plants have come back, animals have come back pretty quick, haven't they? Whether or not, I mean, the planet might be better off without us, but of course, um, we wouldn't, right? <laughs> yeah, we we wouldn't. But you already saw during the of... pandemic all these pictures of um, uh, dolphins swimming in Venice and uh, goats taking over cities in uh, or towns in Wales and, and, and those kind of things. So <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot would grow back. You also see examples of um, of forests, for instance. On the other hand, um, not everything comes back. So, so well, the obvious one: species that have died out will not be coming back. Um, so there will be, and also when uh, some uh, when we are completely gone and we don't regulate all kinds of things, you might also see species uh, completely taking over other species that have been put in a situation that they really can't take care of themselves anymore, that, that, that only survive because we take care of those species. So it, it would be 
fascinating to see what happens and yeah maybe some some war zones let's say areas where there are so many landmines that people can't enter anymore and therefore people don't go there anymore are probably a good example of, of the kind of thing what you, what you would see but uh i think a lot would would come back uh, it's also in in the uk for instance is it's probably the country where there's most talk about rewilding which is right because in the uk is a country where uh, a, a much higher percentage than than average in the world uh, nature has has gone and there's now a huge rewilding movement and it's you see spectacular examples of uh, photos taken from exactly the same spot uh, over the past 20 years during these rewilding pro projects how fast uh, nature is is coming back but whether it's the same quality of nature I doubt it. it Maybe in in a in hundreds of years, but but the first nature that comes back is not exactly the nature as it as it originally was. Of course, I see that mm. Evelyn read the book. She said uh, we should all leave. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, <laughs> but that's yes. that's that whole rewilding is 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 uh, is a fascinating movement to uh, to look at and and I um, I've also seen examples of rainforest where I've actually visited a spot in uh, which not real rainforest but but forest on on the west coast of Mexico where already some 50 years ago there were just bare rocks because all the trees had been cut and then there was a kind of uh, hippie couple from California that uh, that took over that place and started to to regrow it again and put some soil back on and put plants on it etc and it was now like a, a paradise i was just basically laying in a hammock for days and enjoying all the beauty around me um i'm talking about some 35 years ago now but it was an amazing example this they showed pictures of what it was when they when they bought the place and 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 what they had made out of it after some 20 years and i've seen also documentaries there's quite a bit of, of this on youtube on on how fast you can regenerate uh wasted land so um yeah it's, it's a yeah. good good question it's great to to focus on by the it's way it's a great question and yeah i was thinking i also went to a place in ghana one time um in my former job at reuters news agency where we visited a project uh, where the the villagers beside a forest were being paid to protect the forest and not to go hunting in the forest and not to cut the forest down. And their big complaint was that the fact that they were protecting nature meant that the elephants in the forest, the forest elephants, were becoming bolder and coming out and eating all of their crops. <laughs> so, you know, they said, you, you promised us to the local authorities, you, know, you promised us money for protecting nature, but nature is coming back and, and harming us now. You know, so yeah. there's this extraordinary balance between, you know, the more elephants because the, 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 for, the forest is more productive, but there are the people are the people aren't ha weren't happy there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, well, of course, yeah, us taking really off the planet is 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 not an idea, but we are with too many. And basically we we the main thing is we consume with too many. So it's it's uh, the, prob the problem is especially. Uh, the richest ten uh, percent or so, and probably everybody listening is is part of the richest ten percent. As as I said recently, if you if you earn thirty thousand a year, you're already part of the top one percent of the planet, which is something all of us probably didn't realize. Um, 
And I see Sue coming back. Um, take your point, Alexander, of what we couldn't bring back. And she mentions the dodos, which I fear is um, is something that has a bit of a Dutch uh, uh, fingerprint on it because the dodos were these kind of chicken-like birds uh, that were uh, that couldn't fly anymore, like many birds do that live on islands. Because first of all, there is no uh, predators that uh, that hunt them down, so they don't have to fly up in the trees to survive. But uh, what also happens is that the birds that can fly, they risk being 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 because they are light and they can fly. They risk being blown away uh, during storms, and uh, it's, a, it's a Darwinistic principle that those birds that can't fly anymore and that become bigger and heavier and that are on the ground, uh, they survive uh, tropical cyclones better. Uh, than those that are in the birds. So the dodos became these kind of, yeah, kind of kind of dull chicken-like birds that were walking on the ground on the islands of Mauritius and Réunion. And as soon as uh, the Dutch arrived as a stop on their way to the Dutch East Indies, uh, rats that were on the on the ship, uh, on the Dutch ships, uh, they uh, they escaped from the ships and found a new live on those islands and they were they were eating these uh, these dodos and on, on both islands uh, by about um, 1863 uh, no sorry 1663 uh, i say on top of my head is i believe the last time that any of these were sighted so all that is left is a few um, of our golden age uh, paintings of them uh, as well as some bones uh, that are uh, left in some uh, some archives, uh, both in Amsterdam as well as in uh, uh, in uh, Louisville and in in, um, in Mauritius and Réunion. Uh, so that is um, a bit of dodo history, yeah. <laughs> and a dried out bit of dodo in a museum in Oxford, I know as well in England. Um, yeah, yeah. Some of it, I think, was rescued from a fire that they were burning it, and they discovered that this was one of the last <laughs> examples of one of these poor the creatures. Yeah, they yeah. just ate them. Yeah, it's crazy. What a what a story. And um, yeah, there was there was no um, there was no biodiversity treaty in those days. Nor is there one now, as uh, <laughs> as, as we all know. I think we we've been no on this for more than an hour. So uh, oh, I see Donald has a question. I have to um, I have to move between two different screens. So I was now in the chat since Evelyn put us there. But Donald, you're. Um, you're invited to speak now, but you have to unmute yourself. There you are. Yeah, I'll just make a brief comment, get you guys response, but or maybe two. As George Carlin pointed, I, I, I want I want humans to survive. I want us to thrive. I want us to do the right thing. But uh, the sooner if humans left the planet tomorrow, that would save the earth big time. George Carlin said, you know what? All this stuff about the environment, we, you know, <laughs> the earth will be fine without us. Just saying that. But the first thing is I'm very logical minded, always have been. You know, uh, I remember a real guy who's like one of these 16 year old geniuses that went to Harvard talked about that only for limited purposes do we need fossil fuels for like super intense industry. And he was talking about neighborhoods, uh, whether it's wind, whether it's even a stream going through your just all the little things we could do. We, could, we wouldn't need grids and all that. So I'm very much environmentally conscious and all. But here's one thing I'll say about the climate change thing. When the Erie, uh, when, you know, Lake Erie started burning and it was a big chunk of it, that was one of those like tipping points. And we got into a lot of environmental, you know, cleanup of the earth, of, you know, of the planet. 
But I think it's because there were specific things. There was cars. You could see the smog in L.A. You could see the leg burn or whatever. And I just think that if I was a provocateur who wanted to put the hijinks and put the, you know, and stop the whole, you know, environmental movement like an Exxon lobbyist, I think I would talk about that it's got to be the entire planet and every country and it's so big and it's climate change and the only talking about that i think it defeats the purpose of doing the things that we need to do it not just local you can't just do it yourself but you know i don't use pesticides i recycle a plastic bag a million times so i do my little part but i think we need to get back to wait a minute you know what there's no downside for all the things that we're going to do about climate change i wish we would get back to calling it the environmental movement talk about all the medium and semi-large and you know, things that we could do as an as individual nations, you know, but to put it on that big scale like that, it makes it so big that people just want to hide their head in the sand and it never gets an inch further. That's my comment. Yeah, I, I very much agree. And uh, you you may have heard the interview that I did with Michael E. Mann, and he, he very much spoke about this too, that uh, the interest that uh, the fossil fuel industry has to make us believe that this is too difficult uh, to tackle or in other ways try to get us on 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 the wrong lack in in tackling this so for instance yep. making us feel guilty about our own behavior so uh, so we should you know separate our waste and, and and do all kinds of things which by the way all of them are good uh, but that it's up to us and that it's 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 you know the governments can't solve it it should start with yourself should end with yourself Right. Recycle, recycle. That They knew it was a scam from jump. They said, look, we can get them to think that that, you know, they knew even if you tried to recycle all the ways that they said they could, it wasn't doable with all the numbers and it wasn't, you know, so yeah, that's another big scam. And again, we it was a, it's a, it's, I didn't, we didn't make this up, but this group I helped, I just took Nyper's, uh deal and it was for a recycling out, outfit that wanted to stop a, a steam burning plant that was going to be 20 years behind the times when it was built and obsolete when it started but anyway it was called recycle first and reduce reuse and recycle yeah. that's not making the first place but i use these bags a million times i do reduce i do reuse you know but anyway yeah yeah, no, I, yeah. I i agree with you these things are i mean a lot of things that uh as, as you said earlier in your, your first comment when uh a, a lot of things that we should do to create a better environment including uh, uh climate uh, climate action makes life better on this planet we should do them anyway so it's 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 basically yeah. about uh reusing be more careful with your resources etc these are all the things you do in your own household as well i mean within your own family you also try to you know to not, not waste things uh, to keep things clean uh, etc it is just a normal practice so we should more living on the planet as if we are living uh, all together in one house as one family right because also yeah, exactly the yeah i really like your points about you know the when lake erie caught fire i just looked it up it was in 69 wasn't it and um that that's the trouble with a lot of these environmental things are just happening kind of little by little aren't they you know the sea levels are going up every a few millimeters a year the, there are a few more storms there are more powerful hurricanes there are more droughts or but it's it, you need a really big news to get people to get to start acting, don't you? And, and you have that problem, as you were mentioning, this is a, you know, that everybody says, oh, we only count for 1% of global emissions or 0.5%. Even, even I heard um, one of Joe Biden's um, senior people from the, from the State Department saying, 
we only account for 15% of world emissions in the United <laughs> States. We can't do this alone. You know, we need the help of other countries as if other countries aren't interested in that, you know, your own, your own emissions in the United States aren't among the highest per capita in the world. You know, it's, it's got to be a global yeah. thing, but it's really difficult to get the sheep together to do it, isn't it? Um, and like you say, you know, what, what are the downsides? I mean, hey, if we fail to combat climate change and we only end up with cleaner air, reduced death rates by millions from air pollution. <laughs> hey, we, oh no, we got a nice big forest here now on our doorstep with great biodiversity in it. Oh no, why did we do that? You know, there's no downsides to it, as you both said. <laughs> yeah. It's like climate change, therefore climate. Oh, that means we got to do something about bad hurricanes and tornadoes. Go to the average. What are you going to do about hurricanes and tornadoes? I don't know. Well, what are you going to do about pesticides on the lawn? When I was stocking shelves at this place many, many years ago, a grocery store, he said, think about all the all the like the raid that we spray and the Drano that we were stocking in that whole shelf. It's like, you know what, even if it's a giant brownfield and a big gas you know, petroleum refinery, it's still several, a couple square miles, but the, the permeation, now we have Roundup, just like it never uh, was a problem. It's like, it's still on the shelves. It's insane. And what happened when, during the Nixon administration, after Lake Erie burned and all that? Now, he was a conservative. He did it because he had to. The political current was, you got to do liberal stuff, and it was good stuff, really, really good stuff. But so much of it happened during the Nixon administration because his constituency was... Elite, elite liberals. But now they want Biden. They don't want even it's weird. It's like they're not forcing any president to do anything because there's been too many generations in a row that have been upper middle class people that have no connection to working people anymore. And yeah. it's all part of a piece. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but, mm. you know, they don't care because they're going to live in a gated community and they're going to make sure that Roundup doesn't get used in their, uh, you know, homeowners uh you know what I mean? Uh, uh, charter. And they're going to make sure that their place is clean. They're going to make sure that when the cops are eliminated, they're going to have private security. So these things aren't going to affect everyone. They're not going to live near cities. They're going to live in uh, and, you know, uh, the exurbs where the air is clean and they're not going to allow any pollution where they live. And it's already happening. So that's another dangerous thing is that where's this collectiveness going to happen if it, you know, because it's, it's going to have to come from the proles and I, they don't have it together to do it. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It, in a, you see, indeed, I agree. You see this development more in the U.S. Uh, than you see in 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 the states in uh, in, in Western Europe, uh, for the simple reason that um, America has allowed uh, business to completely take over the political process. Um, so the politics are much more uh, for companies than for people, and that is. Uh, maybe the most fundamental difference uh, between politics in uh, in western europe and the politics in uh, in the united states and yeah. it is it is killing the effectiveness of of your government because the government is no longer governing for the people and that is uh, my way of reading your constitution is that there's a government for the people it uh, it it doesn't start with you know we the companies it starts with we the people, right? <laughs> but interestingly, well, not to go off on yet another tangent, but there's a there's a really great like the anti-federalist papers, the people that really critique the Constitution. And there was a debate whether it should be we the several states. So the idea that it was people sounds great. Mm. 
but it meant that the very third, he said, this is what he says, by the third word, it became a totalitarian federalist top-down government, and it was not going to be separate states anymore, you know, uh, because we did, there was a lot of states' rights, you know, uh, originally. So I just mean to throw that in parenthetically, so... It's no, an interesting point. That's great. Thinking about the Constitution. But what you said about Europe, if I could just throw this in, is so key because I tell people that they like Trump over there, right? And they have Le Pen. They have far-right parties. And all these people that talk about American economics and free market, it's okay, Mr. Right-Winger Trumper, go over there and say to the right wing, to the John, you know, the yellow vest, which is kind of, a, you know, multi, but it's said to be right. You know, all the popular, all the parties, tell them you're going to take away their health care. Not, and not in Scandinavia. I'm talking about in France and Germany. You know, the regular countries, not the regular country, but the mainstream middle of Europe countries tell these right wingers that we're eh, are you going to do American style. We're going to take away your free your health care to stop free tax paid health care. We're going to take away your free college education or cheap. We're going to take away your six weeks of vacation because we're going to go American style Trump. And <laughs> they would turn you and ride you out of town on a rail, no matter how far right the party is. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right, right. It, yeah. but, except for the six weeks, which is more like, like nine weeks in Europe. But yeah. yes, yeah. Richard Wolf <laughs> says Bernie Sanders would be a far right because that's where his agenda really would land mostly. And that's why I'll just throw this in. We need a re responsible right wing party because somebody was from the middle of the road center left party in Europe said to some of the far left, like Marxist, not socialist even. And said, boy, you're hurting us. He said, no, you need us. You pick and choose the things we can agree on that you can find that are palatable because they like they like the Marxist stuff, the socialist stuff, at least. You need us as a foil so that you can see that, hey, if we don't do this, the Marxists say, and they could still get more left wing stuff done and a responsible right wing party where you could have coalitions that can get stuff done. But you could also. It, well, that there you go, because there's plenty of things that if you right wing, you know, Republican Party in America wasn't so ridiculous, even worse than the Democrats, if that's possible. You know, there's so many populist right wing things with jobs, with small business that they could do. Yeah, although yeah. I think any... a, a responsible conservative party helps the socialists and the left wing parties, whatever they are in Europe or America as well, I'm saying. Yeah, I think any European would see the American Democratic Party as a responsible right wing party. Um, and it's yeah, just that we I wonder see. where the responsible center or left parties are, um, and some select Republicans. Yeah, we it doesn't exist in Europe. Uh, we we have populists, but we don't have nah. uh, we don't have a party that presents an eleven point plan. Uh, one of which is that the poorest people in the country are going to pay way more tax. Uh, I'm not mentioning <laughs> a word about the richest people in the country <laughs> that should pay tax. Yeah, Rick Scott, he's great. <laughs> yeah, I think that yeah, there's 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 this there's this thing, isn't there, that people in Europe for centuries are used to the idea of somebody being in control, somebody being a central authority. You've had a king or a, a government with a lot of power. So I think we're we're much more willing in Europe to defer to the government in deciding things like climate change, that you, we will do this as a, a national thing, whereas the US constitution you know, the U.S. system um, was designed to to promote the individual. After all, I mean, you're back in you know back in the old days, there were just these states along the eastern seaboard, weren't there? And you had to encourage people to be uh, independent-minded, go off and do this, do everything they wanted on their own, which is fantastic for entrepreneurs, um, but it's not great for um, fighting climate change and fixing things like biodiversity. 
Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was never, I mean, the way it is now, let's say, since uh, since uh, since the Reagan years and, and, and then it gradually grew worse, it was never like that. I mean, if you go back to Eisenhower, he was a Republican, but the richest people paid 90, 90% tax, as they should. Uh, that was not some kind of left-wing agenda. That was just responsible uh, politics. And, uh, and that is completely completely gone i mean if that was right wing in those days um I, I i wonder how left wing was in those days well we knew of course there was there was the new deal uh, and and uh, and which was never really finished because of the second world war i think we drifted quite far away from climate change by the way but uh, yeah <laughs> i guess we're interesting uh... discussion <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had women voting rights. Uh, we guess, went to Eisenhower again. And, all sorts uh, of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I well, guess maybe it's time to start wrapping it up. America at its best, to not always be pessimistic about this country, but at times, after World War II, we learned from World War I that penalizing uh, people and uh, to the victim along the spoils, Germany wanted to, you know, and they were forced to fight World War II and not forced to. I'm not saying Hitler did the right thing. What I'm saying is after World War II, we did the Marshall Plan. And for all the toppling of governments and all the bad stuff, you mentioned Eisenhower, we did the interstate, which was something that was a peon to the car industry that we didn't want mass transit. That's another story. But we did the right thing and we were the model for the world. And, you know, potentially, if we could live up to some of the things and that use some of that entrepreneurial spirit, if the people in politics, you know, and the, if the Democratic Party that just said, forget it, we're going to be the, the other corporate party. And that was always a conduit through which I wouldn't say that the Democratic Party had a particularly progressive agenda. FDR was trying to save capitalism, et cetera. But on climate change, Amer you know, to keep it really focused back on that, we could be the leader of the world, you know, again, in certain ways, if we chose to the way we you know, supported in terms of industry. Forget about the fact, let's not forget, it was 30 million Russians that got killed in World War II. But in terms of industry, we had cardboard cutouts for guns and things. I mean, we ramped up pretty good. We couldn't even do that now. So at its best, because of its size and its economy, not because we're better people than French or Germany or any, France or Germany or anywhere else, but if we would get our act together somehow or other, we could be a leader in climate change. And by, like you all were saying too, is, don't worry about the world. Let's do it. Like just let America do it. And it, you know, the, the, the benefits will be, Oh, so we'll have cleaner air. Forget about the rest of the world. Be nationalistic about it. You know, make America clean again. You know, oh. <laughs> Well, the point is America has to be a leader in climate change for the very simple reason that we can't solve climate change in the world without the leadership of America. You saw that in 2015, when um, uh, Kerry and Obama both put their weight behind uh, the negotiations on the, on the Paris Agreement, they, they had such, such a tremendous influence on making this a success. And there was so much hope in, uh, in, in, in the first months after, after 20th of August in, in 2020, uh, that America would show leadership again, and then it just got got bogged down into all kinds of other problems, and 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 uh, uh, and Glasgow uh, was well, I can't call it a complete failure, but it didn't deliver. Uh, it was a huge disappointment, um, yeah. and uh, and we, but we need America as uh, as the country that is emitting fifteen percent, uh, as the country that is still. Uh, the most powerful country in the world as the country with uh, the huge uh, uh, with the biggest uh, historic uh, emissions of greenhouse gases was still among 
uh, with per capita among the highest in the world, only beaten, I believe, by Qatar and Abu Dhabi and one or two more of those those uh, GCC states. Um, and uh, yeah, so we need American leadership. And uh, I, I, I just hope that the country soon gets back in a position that they can provide it. Yeah. Let's hope. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good moment to um, <laughs> to 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 end to it because up. I know Alistair is in yeah. in Norway. It must be horribly late by you by now, uh, because even here uh, we we it's it's already four thirty. So, sun's uh, going down. Yeah. Yeah. That sun's was a lot of fun. A yeah. bit. Great talk, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Donald. Donald. Thanks. And thanks for the other uh, speakers and writers as well. Since we have uh, to dinner, <laughs> thank you. For, thank you. I'll, I'll talk to you all again. I'll be looking for you. Okay. Bye, Donald. Yeah. Thanks so much. So. Bye. Then. See you all soon. Yeah. So we will be back yeah. uh, next uh, Thursday, same time, same place. Um, uh, again, uh, three o'clock Eastern time uh, on uh, call in with our weekly review of uh, all the environmental news. Um, I will also be back on uh, Monday, and there's likely a few others uh, in between now and Monday. Uh, but I'm not sure yet where and when. So just uh, stay tuned and also follow the announcements on Twitter and Instagram. Alistair, some last words? Well, great. I mean, we kind of covered a lot of ground there, didn't we? Biodiversity, climate change, pollution. Um, we solved it all. The history of the world. And <laughs> 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 hey, we solve, we solve all the problems in 100 years' time. Let's just hope that the teacher is a rational person and not something even more messed up person than than our current <laughs> our current system is generating <laughs> i hope so i hope so i think there was a lot a lot in this one um and uh yeah so uh looking forward to uh, uh to see uh, you alistair and to see all the listeners again uh, next week don't forget to uh uh, to subscribe uh, to follow the two of us and and subscribe to both uh uh, the news and the planet uh, podcasts and hope to uh, all see you back thanks for uh, staying with us for what is it one and a half hours okay that was nice i hope to see yeah. you all soon again bye, -bye. thanks very much everybody take care